Do we think that we're fooling the kids? Let them fail, for goodness sake. Don't let them leave your house and then have that be the first time that they're experiencing failure. Few things are more quintessentially American than fearless exploration of the frontier. Lewis and Clark made an imprint on our national DNA. We are, after all, a nation of religious refugees, former slaves, and immigrants who risked everything to build a better life in the land of opportunity. And man, has that fearlessness paid off. Consider just a short list of world-changing American innovations. Electricity, the automobile, the airplanes, the radio, television, the telephone, and the internet. These achievements didn't come without spectacular failures, but each time we dusted ourselves off and tried again. But what if we're losing that classically American spirit? Recent studies show that one third of Americans are more afraid of failure than heights, snakes, or public speaking. Nearly half of the adults surveyed acknowledged that their fear of failure was the biggest barrier to achieving their goals. And our kids today are the most fear-driven and anxious generation on record. Where have we gone wrong as parents? And what can we do to ensure the next generation is ready to head out into the unknown and thrive? Well, today's guest, Alice Daly, is the author of The Magic Mom. She's the daughter of immigrants, a successful business owner, and the mother of four daughters who believes that being a mom is the most entrepreneurial venture that exists on the planet. Her book is a step-by-step -step guide for raising independent-minded kids while still being able to take care of ourselves in the process. The question I kept getting was, have you raised four girls that are entrepreneurial and curious and kind and adventurous? And that's where the Magic Mom came from. So MAGIC is an acronym for Model, Affirm, Grace, Inquire, and Coach. And every principle I can think of that we've used to raise our kids at home fall in the category of those letters. Alice's framework for entrepreneurial parenting offers moms and dads alike a powerful way to help our kids head into the world like explorers on an adventure. And what's more American than that? Alice, welcome to Dad Saves America. Thank you, it's such an honor and a joy to be here. So obviously we both have kids at Acton, so that's that's how we know each other. But you wrote this great book, and before I get to the meat of the book, which there's a lot of awesome stuff in there, I just wanna talk about your story, because you've got a really interesting story. You've done some, <laughs> you've done some crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> they're just normal to me, so I don't think they're crazy. <laughs> You're someone who decides, I need a break, so I'll go climb Kilimanjaro. <laughs> this is this is the kind of person you are. Before we got started, we were talking about that you're a first-generation yeah. immigrant. So just talk about that. What does it mean to be an immigrant to America? Yeah, so my parents came here in 72, and uh, I'm an only child. And you know that the reason that anybody comes to the country is for opportunity. Parents want something more and better for our children, and that's what my parents wanted for me. And I was really fortunate to have parents that appreciated their own culture, yet didn't force the culture on me in this country because people assumed, oh, you're gonna be a doctor, you're gonna be a lawyer. It was just very normal. I would get it asked, I would get asked all the time, you're gonna be a doctor or lawyer. I'm like, mm. if you looked at my math scores, my science scores, you probably would not want me to go into medicine. And you they, go to homeopathy, I think that's uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> and I was I was just artistically bent. I was, you know, more into music and I, I understood people. So psychology and sociology, when I started taking these classes in college, my parents were like, a little worried. Um, but at the same time, there wasn't the pressure of, you need to go into medicine, you need to go into law, you need to go into engineering. There was, there was none of that. And I'm really grateful for it. I think that was a really unusual characteristic to how I was brought up. 
So uh, your parents are from India? They are from India. Uh, where in India did they come from? South India, so Goa, Madras. And you know, you, t you sort of say this kind of in passing, like, oh, of course I'm gonna, you know, people expect me to be a doctor yes. or a lawyer. So can we dig into that for just a sec? So yeah. what, what's going on there? Why, why do you think that is? Like, why, why is that a dominant expectation? Because I think for years that's been equated with success. That's, those are the professions that made money. And if you have money, then you're able to do all the things you wanna do and there's status associated with those things. But I think that's changed over time. I mean, look at all the professions you can have now that actually make more than medical professionals and you can have a lifestyle. Right. That status that has been equated with medicine and I, I don't think it's, it's as much there anymore. So t talk about your studies. So you didn't go into in pre-med or law. What did you do? What did you study? I'm really fortunate that my parents were, were totally okay with me being into music. And um, that was my passion. And I thought I was gonna be a music major. But I also knew I needed a plan B just in case music wasn't the thing. Good so <laughs> so I wanted to pick, um, I, I really got into church when I was in high school. I started going to youth group and that's where I found my people. It's where I found kind of the, my core friends. And I thought, well, it'd be really cool for four years to go into an environment that was a Christian environment. So I'd never been in one before. I went to a K through 12 college prep school, that um, really exclusive school in Baltimore. I mean, anybody that has been to Baltimore will know McDonough School. It's just kind of like, it's, it's the name you kind of throw around and people oh. like have an association with it. So I, I chose Wheaton College because it was known as the Harvard of Christian Colleges. Okay. And I thought, okay, well, at least I'll get a really good education. Uh, I'm 30 minutes outside of Chicago and there's a conservatory of music. So it kind of checked all those boxes. But I, uh, I got to college and I realized very quickly that the conservatory of music was not for me because it took the joy out of it for me when I started to study it and things were technically incorrect. And I'm like, no, 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 I just want to do this for fun. That is this thing that's interesting when you talk about should you pursue your passions? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes your passions should stay over here <laughs> yeah. where they don't have the pressure of having to make a living. To make money. And maybe having clients who want things that you don't yeah. want. Being someone that works in like creative arts, it's like, yeah, sometimes it's like you don't get to be yeah. that creative or that artistic necessarily mm -hmm. to make money in creative fields. So yeah. someone pointed out that the great writers basically didn't write for their job. They did something else, and then right. they would write on the side. They didn't. Yeah. They kept that powder dry. Yeah, and then their writings became famous after. Yeah. They never even were alive to see it. So you're studying at, a, at the, the Harvard of, mm -hmm. of uh, the Christian Harvard. Yeah. What were you studying? I got a double major, Christian education and media communications. Like, what does that mean? So <laughs> developing curriculum, if you're gonna go teach within a church, if you're gonna develop curriculum for a church, if you're going to teach within that sort of environment. Like be like a theology teacher at a Catholic school or something like that? Yeah, it, it could apply, I think, in yeah. lots of different areas. But to me, it was just fun. I just knew that I wasn't going to make a career of it, so I better get a second major. So you're taking a major that you know is just for fun. Yeah. When you look back on that, do you feel good about that? Or was that like a waste of time and money? Oh, I feel really good about it. <laughs> okay, good. Because nobody asks, except for this interview, nobody's asking me what I majored in. They just want to know, did you graduate? Right. Did you go to college? And even I think now, that doesn't even matter. Because the proof is in now results, not in where did you go to college? So let's talk about that. So you get out of school mm -hmm. and, and what's next for you? What's the path? You, you're not gonna, you're not gonna <laughs> do what you studied. <laughs> 
<laughs> I did radio for a little bit. Um, so media communications, I, I did some stuff in, uh, in radio. And like lots of people that don't know what they're gonna do, they keep going. So <laughs> I went and got my master's degree in organizational leadership. I had no business getting a master's degree that young um, because I didn't have enough life experience. If I went back and got that degree now, it would mean so much more to me. Um, the gift in it was that I was reading really cool books though, like Good to Great. You know, so organizational 21. leadership. So what is that? What is that? What organizational is that development, organizational, like going into companies and looking how, at how things were structured. Like at the time I was studying like Southwest Airlines and like these great companies at the time that what made them work. There was a lot of psychology of, of how people are and how do you motivate and how do you, how do you train leaders? How do you raise great leaders? What makes a good leader? What was the best book or um, thinker you encountered while you were there? Ooh. Is it Peter Drucker or like the classics? Through college, I encountered one of, I would say the most influential mentor of my life. And she was actually a youth pastor at a church. And she exposed me to like John Maxwell. And I think he's just a brilliant leadership guy. And I feel so fortunate looking back that I was exposed to people that were not only teaching leadership, but leading at high levels. Because there's a lot of theory behind stuff, yet to see people that are doing it really well, or that's a whole other. What does it mean to lead? You studied I, this stuff. I'm, I'm curious to yeah. hear, like, what, you know, and you've, and you've been an entrepreneur, which I want to yeah. get to, but what, what, what does it mean to lead from your perspective? I think leadership is influence. And that's, jo that's John Maxwell's definition. I think it's really that simple. I think we like to make leadership mean positive things, and I don't think it's positive or negative. I think leadership is influence. Anybody that is influencing anyone, anybody else is leading. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I gotta, I'm gonna have to think about that for a little bit. That is a pretty simple, elegant way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Like you, you go out with your friends, and where are we gonna go for dinner? Mm -hmm. And there's probably somebody who's gonna be the one to, uh, to, to move the herd. Somebody They're has leading to. you, right? Somebody has to. In the same way, it could be, you know, that's a that's kind of a neutral example. Um, what about the kid that's like, hey, let's go try the heroin? <laughs> not, not not a great leader, but yeah, influence. But a leader, right? Yeah. That's a leader. That's they're influencing in some way. So what comes next? You you know, how did you start to get into more entrepreneurial work? Yeah. So my husband and I met in college, actually on a worship team. I sing and he plays the drums. We got married thinking we were going to work within the four walls of a church. <laughs> Talk about useless degrees. Um, not useless. My husband <laughs> might kill me for saying that. Um, he actually got a philosophy degree. <laughs> I've heard. I've heard that that like a, a preponderance of CEOs have philosophy they degrees. They do. And although reason... I've tried to verify this and struggled to do so. <laughs> no, he says the reason that he got it is because he wanted to learn how to think, and that he thought at the time he was going to be. He wanted to go to law school. And the highest test takers for law school had philosophy degrees. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But I remember in college, the philosophy majors, their t-shirts, it said philosophy, we're in it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, that's pretty much, you know, what are you, I'm like, what are you gonna do, be a philosophy professor? Like, there's not much to do. Like, you're gonna sit around and think all day. I don't understand how this works, but it has paid off years later. He got a philosophy degree, he then got a theology degree because he could, he had time. It was, <laughs> to him, just came very easily. Within his four years, like all of wow. this was, yeah. So okay. it wasn't like he took extra time. So he got the theology degree and he had, ex he, I say he had extra time. He, um, there was one semester he was taking 24 credit hours between two different schools, but he uh, took enough 
classes to uh, actually go sit for the CPA exam. So he went and sat for the CPA exam. It's like, yeah, I might as well be a CPA while I'm at it. And he got the second highest score in the state of Illinois at the time. And then we started thinking, maybe we're wired, maybe we're wired for business. I, I don't know. Uh, it was about this time we got introduced to Rich Dad Poor Dad. It was a brand oh, yeah. new book. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, this is, this is, we're, we, this is kind of interesting. And I haven't actually read that book. It's on my list. Yeah, yeah. So, so what was what stuck with that book? I mean, I know it's been influential for a lot of so people. So many and the, people. The author well, is a big mm-hmm. influencer. It's a great story about how um, the rich teach their kids something that the parents of poor kids don't teach them. Rich ki- rich parents teach different things about how to leverage money, about how to leverage time, about how money works. And we both came from families that didn't teach us about money. And we're like, ooh, I want to learn from this rich dad. Like, what do the rich know about money that they're teaching their kids that continues the cycle of the rich keep getting richer? They're teaching them something that other kids aren't learning. So it started this journey for us, uh, you know, into personal growth and development. Seth had a, uh, he was doing an internship at Walgreens. He was an assistant manager at Walgreens and someone gave him burnt copies of Jim Rohn. Are you familiar with Jim Rohn? Not at all. Okay. I don't know who so, that is. So, <laughs> business philosopher, he passed away several years ago, but um, personal growth and development and just just some great wisdom. And Seth would just listen to these over and over again. He's like, okay, this is a whole new world that we weren't exposed to. And um, one of the things that Jim Rohn would say is, if something is, is, is worthwhile, like pay full price. And Seth felt so guilty, like, and hmm. not guilty, I think, in a bad way, but in a, oh, this is really valuable information. I'm going to go pay for a full set of these CDs. We didn't really have the money to be paying for a whole set of these CDs, but he's like, if something's worth it, then you pay full price for it. And so he bought these CDs. And then so we started just reading, and we knew we wanted to get into business for ourselves, but had no idea if that was like, are we going to open a Chick-fil-A or a tire store, or what are we going to do? And um, a friend in college said, you know what? Well, if you guys are thinking about real estate, because that had come up a couple times, you, you should go hear this guy speak. And Seth at this time is working ridiculous number of hours as a CPA during tax season. I'm pregnant um, with our second child at this point and working a full-time job. I'm like, I, we're going to travel somewhere to see some guy, talk about real estate, uh, and we're not even in the business. Like, you're a lunatic. Um, so, but we did it. We go yeah. pay for this three-day conference, paid like $1,000 a piece to go. I went kicking and screaming. And by the first break rolling around, I said, this has already been worthwhile. Like we could leave right now. And I feel like I've heard that you can build a great business and have a great life. And they're not conflicting. Because I grew up in the church where I felt like, well, if you love God, you work in the church. But yeah. I never knew the people that funded the church. <laughs> like there were business people that made a lot of money that funded That's the church. Always, they're always, those are always the invisible people. But who's the, paying for this people? Who's paying for yeah, it? Yeah, that's the invisible man and woman behind the curtain. Like some the people footing the bill. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't realize, oh, you can be in sales and sales doesn't have to feel gross. It doesn't have to feel icky. It doesn't have to feel like a used car salesman. And that's what I w- had always experienced and been afraid of. So what does that mean? What, where do you where do you start? So it's like you've you've gone to this um, conference, yep. and you're like, wow, we could do something in real estate. Mm-hmm. So, but you need money to buy real estate. Like, where do you start from yeah. there? So we went. I went into real estate sales. Our oldest daughter was born uh, at two pounds, and we oh, were wow. in Chicago. 
His family's in Montana. My so was she a preemie? She was a, she was very much a preemie. She was yeah. born at 29 weeks. Wow. And um, it was one of those freak things. And uh, his family's in Montana. Mine was in Baltimore. Here we are in Chicago thinking. It's like we're, we're halfway between. We're, we're by ourselves. So we, we made the decision to move to Baltimore where my family was. So moving back, it's not like I had this big, big network of people. All my friends were gone. All I knew were like the parents of my friends. Nobody was, no, none of them were gonna buy a house from me. So it was building relationships one at a time. And we built a real estate business very much like we would have built a church. It was going and having coffee with people and treating them really well and seeing what we could do for them. How can we serve you? And it ended up being a lot of, uh, we, we would throw a lot of parties. Is essentially right. what we yeah. did. Trying to make connections with people. Just making connections with people, serving people. And we ended up growing a really great real estate business. And we ended up opening a brokerage and kind of having this really great life by all you know, measures. When you looked at it, it was like, gosh, your real estate team's selling over 200 houses a year. You've got great relationships. Your kids can go to whatever schools. You guys travel. You're speaking on stages all across the place. It was pretty great. I always like to dig a little deeper into that career path because I think one of the things that we struggle with as parents, right, mm -hmm. is that our, especially like for those of us that have teenage parents, yeah. it's like we're starting to think about and worry about what's the trajectory our kids are gonna go on. Yeah. And it's like traditional school doesn't provide very much. And I'm not, neither, our kids don't go to a traditional school, mm -mm. but even so, like what am I going to do next? What career might I like? I'm not even sure. Like, this is the stuff that's very top of mind for me. Yeah. So when you say you built a real estate business, were you a realtor? What did it mean to go from that to building something of your own? Yeah. And I guess that would be a brokerage. So just give me a little bit more detail sure. there. Yeah, so I started selling by myself. So Seth went from being a CPA to a lender. And I went from human resources into, I'm going to sell houses. And because it was kind of like, I'll have the chicken, you have the fish. <laughs> I don't really know which is going to do well, and we've already got two kids like we've got to take care of, so let's not be too irresponsible. Yep. Um, three years in, we were both doing really well, and we wanted more kids, and we're like, how do we continue in this path but not build separately? Because going back, we wanted to work together. We were thinking we were going to work together in a church. Now here we are growing two separate things. So, so he's at a bank. Right, yeah. and we thought at first diversification was really important. That was the value. And then it was like, you know what? How much further could we go for it in this little life raft together, rowing in the same direction? So then we realized synergy was more important. What was the hardest thing about working with your spouse? I think the hardest things are always the best things too. Hmm. So what I mean by that is, you know, we never turned it off. Yeah. Right? You're talking about it. I mean, I ask this because I've, you know, I met my wife at work yeah. and we've always worked together. You so. talk about it all the time and yet, that's the gift of it too, is that the understanding that's there of what the other is going through, it's like we're on the same page. So we've been married for almost 23 years now. For the most part, it's been really great. I, I think the pros far outweigh the cons. Do you think more couples should work together than do? Or is it something that you really have to have a certain type of personality and a certain type of relationship? Because it can be pretty stressful. And especially if, sure. like, if the business isn't doing great or you, know, you get out of sync in some way. Yeah. It, it, you know, and I speak from experience yep. on this. It, it can be like, wow, this is actually, I kind of want to come home and not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would actually take it a different direction and, and answer a different question around how well do you know yourself and how well do you know your spouse? 
we're probably a little fanatical about the number of assessments we'll take and getting to know ourselves and like how we're wired and how the other person is wired to see, okay, like, where do I need to zig when you need to zag? And where are we good doing this together? And where do we need some space? We just, we talk about that sort of stuff a lot. So I think for most people, it's not, is it right to work, work together or wrong to work together? It's, hey, what do you want? Like, what's the, what do you want for your life? Some people are just like, no, I, I want to not ever talk about work. Okay, well, then maybe don't work together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't do that. If you want to, if you want to shut off when you get home, <laughs> this is not the path. This is not the path. So we're sitting here in Austin, Texas. We are. You built this business in Baltimore. So mm -hmm. what leads you here? 2015, we're at the peak of everything. We opened uh, Keller Williams' office, 100-some agents, and wow. our team is, again, at our peak, 200 houses a year. We're speaking everywhere. On the outside, everything looks great. On the inside, I'm feeling a little crispy, like, okay, what's next? I'm starting to get restless, and yet we're at the peak. Like, we have what everybody else wants, and so I don't even know how to express, like, I, I want to do something different. I don't like this anymore, but how, <laughs> the thing that I, I built to be free it now feels like a noose, right? And I knew in 2015 that things didn't feel well, but I didn't know how to articulate it. And I felt guilty for even suggesting that I didn't like what we had. Were you sharing that with, with your husband all along the way? So you were both grappling with this or was there kind of a moment of being like, no, he's super pumped, we're doing great. And it's like, I don't, I want to get out. <laughs> I want to get off the train. Um, we had um, we had some weird family stuff happen in 2007. That um, That's another show. That might be a Jerry Springer episode that okay. we do right, with, over some out with some alcohol. Um, that made us know that we either needed to move or we were going to build our business so big that we could travel and do what we wanted. And together, we made the decision, you know what, we're going to build the business, we're going to travel, we're going to do whatever we want. 2015 rolls around and I'm realizing, well, we're traveling, we're doing all the things that we said we wanted to do. We, meet, we met our goals, yet every time the wheels of the plane would touch down and we'd get home, I didn't want to be home. I'm like, mm. I didn't want to come home. And it wasn't like there was some other place that was calling us that I'm like, ooh, I want to move here and I set a new goal. It was more of an away from value. I didn't want to be here, but I couldn't set this next goal. And Seth said, you know what, let's build this franchise, we'll build this and then I'm sure doors will open. And I'm like, okay, I can be on board with that. So 2015 was when that launched and I thought, okay, I can hang on for a couple more years and we can, we can do this. And, but as a couple more years went on, again, it didn't feel like we were getting closer. It felt like we were more <laughs> into it. And I'm like, this is the opposite of what I thought I was yeah. signing up for. You're Michael Corleone in the, the uh, <laughs> rightfully maligned Godfather 3. Yes. Every time I try to get out, they pull me back they in. They pull me back in. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, okay, I can power through, I can power through. And at some point the willpower just gave. And 2018, I remember the day I went into my office and I, have a glass, I had a glass door in my office at the time. The tears wouldn't stop. I couldn't stop crying. I was just like, I don't even know why I'm crying. I just know that like, so, like life isn't okay. I didn't know it at the time, but that was the beginning of what shifted everything for us. And my husband asked me, he's like, are you sick of Baltimore? or the business, or the marriage. And I said yes to all of it. Oof. Yeah. That's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to hear. It's a, <laughs> I was, yeah, it it's was like, a oh. hard thing to hear. And um, okay. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, now what? And uh, I finally got to the point where I was, the pain of being there was greater than, you know, anything else that could have happened at that point. And I just stopped showing up to work. 
I just, I was home. I, that's when I started counseling. I started just more of the internal stuff. I realized that um, busy was a way that I was behaving so I didn't have to feel things. I didn't even know how to be in touch with my emotions or what I thought or what I was feeling or everything I was doing was I was doing for external purposes, like taking care of the kids, taking care of my clients, taking care of my husband, taking care of the house, taking care of, but everything, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I remember my counselor saying one day, she's like, Alice, fine is the Christian F word. <laughs> she's like, every time you say you're fine. <laughs> how do you end up hiking Kilimanjaro. That actually happened in 2015. So when I knew right. I was crispy, yes, I was open to more opportunities. So a client said, you know, hey, would you go do this with me? And I was like, sure. And we were raising money for women that had been affected by violence and war zones. And so uh, she knew all of the 14 women, but we didn't all know each other. So I'm like, I'm feeling super crispy and, stre and stressed out. <laughs> Let's hike a crazy mountain. I, and the funny thing is, is like, I've never been the athlete. I've, I don't even like camping. Camping's like the holiday inn for me. So my husband's like, you're going where? He's like, I've been trying to get you to go camping in Montana forever. And now you're gonna go to Africa. I'm like, yeah, why not? So yeah, so I said yes to that adventure because at that point I was like, I was looking for friends. I went, I went for a community. That's my number one life value. And at that time I was feeling trapped. And what I didn't realize at the time, I was looking for people that I can now share with that I didn't feel like were attached to where I was. Because when you're in a sales business, everybody's a client, everybody's a potential client, everybody's a referral source. So yeah. you're on your A game. It's like you're always having to look and be a certain way. And I was ready to not have to do that. That makes a lot of sense. So, okay, so what was the craziest thing about that experience? The craziest thing is uh, some at night. You leave at about 1130 at night. And the goal is that you get to the top by sunrise. You're up top for 15 minutes and you turn around and come back just because at 19,000 feet, your body can't really stand being up there. And uh, 11, about 1130 at night, we're all getting ready. And like I pop like 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. And then like a couple minutes later, I forgot I had done that. So I did it again. Oh, no. <laughs> and at that point, like you're just, you're just in survival mode. And uh, start going up and you're literally, your, your steps are like, That's how slow you're walking. I mean, it is like switchback after switchback. You have your headlamp, all you can see are the boots of the, of the person in front of you. And my pack, all it had was the um, oxygen tank in it. And um, at some point it was just like, it was hurting my back. And I'm, so the, you know, the guide, he stopped and he's adjusting it. At some point he's like, he told everybody else to keep going and we're gonna catch up. Well, I had to do that several times. So you're falling further behind. I'm falling further behind. And uh, to the point where I'm like, oh, I can see them, we're fine. We're fine. And then I'm like, I think they're probably an hour and a half ahead of me. And then I remember their lights extinguishing. Like I couldn't see them anymore. I can't see ahead of me. And I turn around. I'm like, I can't see camp anymore. So you're just in darkness. I am in darkness with a guide who does not speak very much English. And this sucks. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what time it is. I don't know how far I have to go. Cause basically they're like, oh no, you're almost there. Just keep going, just 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes, and then we'll rest, 10 more minutes, and then we'll rest. Um, so we keep going, I don't know, I threw in some headphones, I kept going, and at some point I remember him saying, hey, turn around, and I turn around and there's the sun. Now, it's a beautiful thing to see the sun. The crappy part then is then you can see how much farther you have to go. <laughs> and I look up ahead, I'm like, 
wow, I still have a ways to go. Um, but I'll say, I, I, I said to myself, I'll be damned, I did not come all of this way to turn around and tell my girls that I didn't get to the top. So I'm like, I'm gonna keep going. When I said community was really important to me, I really wanted the picture of all of us at the top. That's what I wanted more than anything. <laughs> I just wanted a picture of our whole group at the top. And then I remember the moment where I saw them starting to come back down. I saw the first person in my group come back, uh... coming back down. And I'm like, well, there goes the picture. And then the second one. And everybody's in survival mode, right? They're like, oh my gosh, we're so glad you're okay. We didn't know where you were. We wanted to stop. Because I made up all these stories. Look, they left me, right? They went on without me. I can't believe they did that. Because your mind plays all these tricks on you. You're in the dark. You're alone. You're cold. You're miserable, dehydrated. And I saw my friend, Belinda. She was my client. And uh, she was the one that initiated the whole trip. And I remember thinking, oh, Belinda's coming down with her guide, Ricardo. Ricardo speaks really great English. If I can switch guides, I bet Ricardo will have like, he's like a good coach, a good motivator. I'm like, I bet I could get to the top with Ricardo. So I said, hey, Belinda, can I just switch guides with you? And she's like, hey, Ricardo, we're going back up again. And I'm like, no, 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 we just switch guides. She's like, no, no, no. She's like, I made a deal with God that if you were more than halfway up, I was going back up with you. And in that moment, she was absolutely empathy personified for me. I mean, she just, I, I, I mean, I just cried because I'm like, who does that? Who summits Kilimanjaro twice in a day because their friend, <laughs> wow. you know, she didn't want me to go up by myself. So the only pictures you'll ever see of me at the top are either me by myself or me and Belinda. What did you learn about yourself when you got, when you made it to the top? I can do freakishly hard things. It's the memory that anchors me when I'm going through something hard. I'm like, no, but Alice, you did that. You did that, you can do this. If you did that, you can do this again. Let's talk about your book. Yeah. So you've got four girls. I do. And your book says the five principles to unlock your natural gifts to raise entrepreneurial daughters. The magic mom. So, okay, magic. Tell me about this. Um, I think for all of us, our genius is so close to us that we can't see it. So when we ended up making the move to Austin, it freed up my time. I, I started coaching instead, because now I can't sell houses. And I knew there was a book in me. And I knew that the question that I get asked the most, that I'm in unconscious competence with, I think we all have an, a question that we get asked a lot that we don't even think about, because it's like breathing to us. And the question I kept getting was, how do, have you raised four girls that are entrepreneurial and curious and kind and adventurous and they're just good human beings. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, well, I could talk about that all day long. I don't know why you want to talk about it because that feels really normal and natural to me. And then I realized, oh, it's not normal to lots of people. Um, and then I just started writing and that's where the magic mom came from. So magic is an acronym for model, affirm, grace, inquire, and coach. And every story, every principle I can think of that we've used to raise our kids at home fall in, in the category of those letters. A lot of people will pick up a parenting book of, oh, this is how to do it. Like, good, I need how. This isn't going to be so much that here's how. This is a how to think about parenting differently. And to parent, it's not about fixing them. It's about us looking in the mirror first. Because we, we have to deal with this person here in order to raise that one. And I think for mothers and daughters in particular, there's a lot of reparenting that happens with mothers hmm. and daughters. Because, And I don't know if you see that as fathers and sons, but I see myself as 
a 10-year-old when I'm talking to my 10-year-old. Yeah, you definitely do. Right? You're, it's, and, and it's interesting, reparenting. I have to think about that. You want to see yourself in your kids, but then you don't really want to see yourself in your kids. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have any self-awareness about what your job is as a parent, it's like you don't want to, like, push them to be like you. You want to help them be who, who they're going they to be. They are, yes. So. So modeling, so yeah, I have some quotes from, mm -hmm. from, the, from the text. So in, in the book you write, the entrepreneurial spirit is not limited to those who wanna start their own business. Mm -hmm. I believe being a mom is in fact the most entrepreneurial venture that exists on the planet. I do. How so? Entrepreneurship, if you look at the definition, is about taking initiative and risk. Yeah, that's true. Tell me what is more uh, risky than bringing a child into the world. I mean, we, we all talk about how you leave a hospital and there's no, there's no rule book, there's no guidebook on what to do. It's funny how we've gotten this far and there are like a ton of books. So, but, but like it, it, everyone always has that experience of, all right, we, <laughs> here we are and here's the baby and Bye. what now? And why am I yet again? another human being that feels this way. <laughs> like my parents, I'm sure, felt this way. My dad was only 23 when I was born. I'm sure yeah. he was like, what the hell am I gonna do now? Right. So what's your advice? How do you, what's the next step? How do I not screw this up? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one, just, just realizing, yes, I'm going to screw this up. It's when we don't have that grace with ourselves and we think I have to get it perfect that we set ourselves up for all kinds of failure. I think there's, a period of time where we're sleepwalking through life because we go to kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. Most people graduate from high school. And after graduation, I can tell you we all do about five things. Maybe go to college, maybe get a job, um, get married, have a kid, buy a house, and then what? It's like a blank page, right? Because the societal script runs out Nobody's told us what to do, and we're like, now what? We've done the things. I've, I've done all the things, and I'm, you know, for me, that was 24, right? Like, okay, now what? I did all, I checked all the boxes. And I think for a lot of people, then just the sleepwalking happens. Like, we just, all right, I go to work, feed the kids, take them to soccer. And for a lot of people, they never the wake up. The hamster wheel. They never wake up yeah. from that. All the while not re realizing that these are just blank pages where you pick up a pen and you can start writing. Now, what do I mean by that? Modeling, okay, we know that we're to be a model for our kids, but after we get out of that formal education that's supposed to teach us all of these things, who are our models? Who are we looking at as models now that we're parents? Are we actually seeking models out for who I wanna be as a mom in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years? Am I looking at who are my models for, for what I wanna do in business or in any year of life, physical fitness, who are my models? I gotta look at that first before I worry about models for my kids. But I think that all of our effort and attention goes to the child, and I think the parent stops growing because we think, well, now I'll just give them everything. And if the greatest burden on a child is the unlived life of a parent, we gotta start to flip that around a little bit. Like we're willing to die for our kids, but are we willing to fully live for them? Yeah, that's a really interesting challenge, right? Because I think for a lot of people, they do imprint on their kids. I think maybe to some extent we all do this, like the things we didn't get to do. 
become, yeah. you know, it's like, I didn't get to be a doctor in India, so, so you're gonna you're be a gonna doctor. Do <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or whatever that might For be. For sure. Um, you, you, you write in the book that uh, your daughter needs to observe the trait that you want her to replicate being put into action. Mm -hmm. The old saying, do as I say, not as I do, just won't cut it when it comes to the deepest core values we desire to instill. Mm -hmm. So, you know, dig in for me what it means to be, to model your, your values. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, so when I got the invitation to go to Kilimanjaro, my oldest was 11, 12. I had every excuse in the world not to go. And I talked to him, each, each one of them individually, and I remember my oldest daughter just in tears because she knew that my going would cost her. I would be gone for like 18 days because we were going to Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo and then we we're going to climb a mountain to summit on International Women's Day and we were doing all of these great things for women. She's like, just in tears, like, but mom, I'm gonna miss you, but you said yes, didn't you? Because she knew, like, I had to say yes. So I had to say yes to model for them that I don't stop living because they're there. I keep living. So what are the things that we want to model? If, if we want them to have a coach in some area, do we have one? If we want them to be physically fit, are we doing something? Hmm. It doesn't have to be the same things, but are we doing something? If we want them to be financially responsible, are we modeling the financial responsibility? And how are we communicating that? So many families, well, you just don't talk about money. So where are they gonna learn about money? Not from school. <laughs> not from school, 100% not from school. Yeah. But it blows my mind, right? Like, well, I don't wanna tell them how much our house costs because I don't want them to feel, do we think they can't look it up on Zillow? Like, <laughs> they're, they're going to know. So why don't we tell them the whole story? Because otherwise they make up pieces of the story because that's what, as human beings, we're meaning-making machines. We're meaning-making machines, I like that. That's, mm -hmm. that's true. We're so hungry for meaning that we will make it up in whatever mm -hmm. we see. How do you model um, faith with your, with your kids? Faith's obviously been a big part of yeah. your, your journey. So um, what does it mean to model that exploration? Yeah. And I don't, even, I don't mean necessarily like, oh, we all go to church, but yeah. the actual like having that relationship, having that exploration. I think it's just a, to go back to Laura Sandifer, just be curious and to tell them our story of what it means for us and how we practice and how we show up and how stories from our own lives, right? So at the end of the day, it's all, each one of them, are, they're gonna make a choice. We don't force them to do anything. And yet, do they know that home is a safe place to have those conversations? Hmm. Yeah. So many parents I watch not wanting, them not wanting their kids to fail or, you know, well, this is the way it is. Why? Because I said so. Well, they're going to have those conversations somewhere else then because they've now been taught that home's not a safe place to have the conversation. I always want home to be the safest place to have the conversation, even if I don't like it. Now, yeah. I've, I've had to train myself to not react to some things, <laughs> right? But yeah, I, I will not react and stay in curiosity because the second I get into judgment with them is the moment that everything shifts. Has there been a time that you really made a mistake with your kids that you learned from and that, I mean, in a way, probably every day. <laughs> I was gonna say, every like, day. every day? <laughs> <laughs> well, was there anything that was like, that, that you'd wanna share that's just like, yeah, that was something that, if you can avoid this, please avoid it. <laughs> 
And that's it. I, I, I don't have those hard and fast, oh, if you can avoid it, avoid it. I think it's the, all change starts with the awareness of it. So the second you're aware of it, then what are you gonna do about it, right? Do you sweep things under the rug or do you bring it to the light? So, I mean, that's anything from an everyday, like a snap at them for something. And I realize, holy cow, that's my own baggage. I'm tired, I'm ticked off because a client did this or this happened or whatever. And uh, I just have to fess up and say, I was not my best self. And I'm really sorry because that was not, that was not okay that I did that. Will you forgive me? And I think those words, will you forgive me, hmm. are really important. Not just like, yeah, I messed up. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's funny, thinking about that, to actually do the, the act of asking for forgiveness sort of hands mm -hmm. it back to the person to, to think about. Because they can choose not to. <laughs> and that's okay, right? Because forgiveness isn't about how the other person responds, it's what it does for the person asking for it. Like, hey, will you, will you forgive me? Like, I'm, I'm asking for it. If they choose not to, like, that's their choice. And yet, that comes from a place of like, no, I'm sincere. Your next uh, letter in the acronym is AFFIRM. So what, what do you mean by AFFIRM? It's what we're speaking to ourselves. So I was a comm major in college. I learned a lot about communications, but there was nothing about how to talk to myself. That would have been the most valuable class because we all have that recording in our head that's playing all the time. And the things that we'll say to ourselves that we wouldn't let somebody say to our child or wouldn't let somebody else say to us. Like you're a complete fraud and an imposter, which I think all of us are being told. Yes. Right, all yeah. of us are being told that. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, it's oh, not just was, me, right? <laughs> no, not at all. I was I was driving home the other, a couple weeks ago, and I caught myself saying, oh my gosh, Alice, you're such an idiot. I can't believe you did that. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I externally, in a car by myself, let myself say that. That was an affirmation. And so, the words that we speak to ourselves are really important. So it wasn't that I said it, it was like, okay, Alice, is that really true? What's really true? And to be able to then speak those words and teaching our kids how to affirm themselves. Um, we also affirm ourselves in other ways that we don't think about. I think we, we see words easily, but what, what, are the, what about the uh, communities that we associate ourselves with? Right, you, you write in the book, um, we are the sum of the five people with whom mm. we spend the most time. Uh, the futuristic five mm -hmm. shape our beliefs and thoughts, which is what ultimately shape our actions and decisions. And Lisa and I think about this a lot. We're pretty engaged in the, the dialogue with our son about his friend yeah. group. And we're pretty acutely aware of like that, that mm -hmm. like he's gonna be 18. Like yep. our influence on him, you talk about like leadership being influenced, mm -hmm. like our ability to lead him is shrinking relative to his social group. Yes. And, and it's not always clear like what, what the hell we can even do about it. It's like, well, if you like this person and your friend and I say like, uh, you're, I think he's a schmuck, that's not gonna. <laughs> that doesn't usually help. <laughs> I, don't, I know these, are, these aren't necessarily affirming words, but um, what, you know, help me think of, and help, you know, people yeah. that are watching this conversation, listening to this conversation, think like, how do you think about what that means? If the five people that our kids are spending t time with um, shapes who they are more than anything else. What can we as parents do about that? And what have you done about it? Yeah, uh, well, we've done lots of things about that. Um, one, and this is very drastic, I don't recommend, 
we actually moved. It's part of our move to Austin, not just for their friend circles, but for our friend circles too, because we just wanted to be around different thinkers. And so this was a great environment for us to be in. And um, it's not better, it's not worse, it's different. It was what we wanted for this season. We wanted to be with different groups of thinkers and a lot of them were here in Austin, so we moved. Again, super drastic. Now, it might be a move and environment even where you are. Is it the school? Is it the peer groups at a sport you know, that they're in? Is it um, a church youth group? Is it, it could be any number of things. Now, when there are friends that they're hanging out with that it's like, I don't even, I don't, I don't get why they're friends, right? Like sometimes you see that and you're like, I, I don't, I don't understand. That's where I go to the I in magic, which is inquire. And this is where we get to be really good question askers. So I'll ask them questions like, hey, tell me about your friend, Susie. What do you like about Susie? What's Susie really good at? What are things that Susie brings to the friendship? What are things that you bring to it? You can go down this whole path of questioning to find out how they're thinking yeah. about that relationship. Because when I've asked those questions, I'm actually really surprised at the answers that I get. They're not what I thought. I've made all of these assumptions. I've created story. I've created meaning around why they're friends. And usually 103% of the time I'm wrong. I'm just wrong. Staying on this concept of affirmation, one of the things I think has maybe become over overdone in our culture is this is is this sort of self-esteem sensibility mm -hmm. and i want so i want to push on this a little bit because okay. it does seem like we maybe have a little too much self-esteem going on <laughs> in our culture you know that, that shades in, you know we had dr drew on the show and we were taught we um, probably our most popular clip from shows is is our conversation about narcissism Mm. And and I do think you know social media and there's yeah. a lot of feedback loops of of, a, of certain kinds of affirmation. Mm -hmm. So what is healthy positive affirmation mm -hmm. and what is sort of um, bubble wrap affirmation? Mm -hmm. Like oh you're the greatest, oh you're the smartest, oh yeah. everybody likes you, oh everybody gets a trophy, <laughs> and next like thing the you Saturday know Night you skits. come out you come out of the world you come out into the world and it's like well the world doesn't really care about you at all. So you're gonna have yeah. to figure it out, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I'm not ready for that. So how do you think about that? How do you think about yeah. the, the words of positive affirmation versus preparing our kids to deal yeah. with a world that has a lot of crosses to bear and has a lot of things that, sure. a lot of people that are not gonna love them like their parents love them, <laughs> or even like them. Even like them. <laughs> and I there's gonna be a lot they have to prove about what they're capable of. And there's yeah. all kinds of stuff that are not yeah. affirming per se. Yeah. Well, I, I'm more into the affirmations of, hey, I can do hard things. Not, hey, I'm amazing and perfect in every way. And I also think there's a both and component of um, the affirmations and allowing them to fail. I think it's the allowing them to fail piece that we're not um, yeah. doing enough of. Let them fail, for goodness sake. Don't let them leave your house and then have that be the first time that they're experiencing failure. I want you to experience failure on a daily basis and tell me what stunk. Like, what did you do? I want to know what you can't do. I don't want to know about all the things you can do. Tell me what you can't do. What's the hardest part about watching, watching your kids fail? The hardest part is my own baggage. It's my own feeling like that I failed, hmm. right? When they, when they go through something, it's like, should I have protected them from that? Like I could have stopped that hurt. And so there are times where, you know, I'll, you know, they'll say something happened and they'll, you know, we'll deal with it. And I'm, you know, I'm keeping on a 
cool, calm, collected face, and then I'll need to go somewhere and like process my own emotion around the failure. But usually it's my own baggage. It has nothing to do with them. And I wait 24 hours and how they've reframed their own thinking because of that. Um, story that comes to mind is when Laura was in traditional school and she ran for student government. I, th I think I tell the story in the book. Yeah, you do, um, yeah, but tell it here. Yeah, and she had magnificent posters and like she just, she was hysterical, she was funny and there was no way she was not gonna win this election. Cause there was like a couple spots and I'm like, surely she's gonna get one of the three spots. And I pick her up and she's my joker. So like on her face, I, I'm like, oh yeah, she's just gonna like pretend like she didn't. And, and she's like, and she just bursts into tears and she's not my crying kid. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh. Now she's also my most resilient because in the next moment, you know, a couple minutes later, she's like, well, it's okay because I need a, I need a story for when I write my book. <laughs> Her ability to reframe failure. That's some modeling in action right there. Right. It was like, oh my gosh, like she gets this faster than I do. Like, but we, I don't know that we allow them the opportunity to show their resiliency. And to be resilient, to be able to bounce back, you gotta be able to fall. Well, I think, I always think about it like, human beings are fundamentally, I guess maybe all animals are necessarily experiential learners. We yes. don't learn by being told things. No. We, we learn by doing them. Doing them. So how are you going to learn what you're capable of if you don't do things that you're gonna fail at? Mm -hmm. Like how are you gonna learn it? How are you gonna, yep. like, oh, I think I could do a good job there. And then you don't, yeah. you're like, oh, I guess I can't. Or maybe I can, but I need to, it's gonna be harder than I thought. Mm -hmm. or I'm gonna need to, it's gonna take more time mm -hmm. or whatever. <laughs> there are so many times where I've, you know, things have happened and they're like, oh, well, I think I'm gonna go do this. And I, yeah, I always almost say something like, oh, don't do that, like, cause that won't happen. And I'm trying to protect them from something instead of experiencing failure. And I've just learned to like, okay, take a step back. Okay, tell me why you wanna do that. Hey, what are the possible outcomes? And asking questions instead. And I remember when Laura, she's writing a book she's gonna publish this year. And uh, she's like, who can I get to endorse my book? I'm like, I don't know. And uh, I, I was coaching that day. And so I'm on my Zoom call and all of a sudden my cell phone starts blowing up and she's like, mom, 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 mom. And I'm thinking the house is on fire. And I'm like, I'm coaching. She's like, do you know who Angela Duckworth is? I'm like, oh, yeah. the author of Grit? She's like, yeah, she just endorsed my book. <laughs> so I get off my coaching calls. I'm like, the Angela Duckworth endorsed your book? She's like, yeah. I'm like, how'd you do it? She's like, I emailed her <laughs> and she liked my book. And if she had asked me, yeah, I would have that's, said, that's something else. Don't, don't, yeah, she, yeah, that's not gonna work out. I would have told her something different. And I'm glad. That didn't happen because she got it. Tell the story of um, I'm I'm not remembering which of your of your daughters figured out how to fly herself to an event. So was, lay, lay yeah. this out. This is great. <laughs> so we're kind of a, a experiential family. So we love Tony Robbins and the Walk on Fire piece especially. So Seth goes and does it first. Seth and I go do it again, um, and then it's become kind of a rite of passage in our family where he'll take each one of our daughters when they turn like 13. And so Carissa to went Robbins. to see Tony Robbins okay. and the first night of that four day experience, you go walk on fire. Cause it's one of those Kilimanjaro experiences, right? Like if I can walk on fire, what can I not do? And so Carissa went and did it. Laura went and did it. 
And then the next year we're moving, we moved to Austin. And she's like, well, I wanna go again. And we're like, well, it's not in the budget and we have no plans to go. But we've always been a yes how family. We don't like to tell them no. We're like, okay, it's cool that you wanna do that. How are you gonna do that? A yes how family, that's, that's worth, that's worth uh, putting a little, <laughs> putting on a sticky note, yeah. but keep going. Yeah, so instead of no, we're like, okay, yes how? Um, because still, everything has to run through us. It's not like just because they say they're going to do it, it gets to get done. But I want to. We want to see how they're thinking because again, like if we can launch them into the world and know that how they think is valid, then everything else works itself out. And uh, she had won. She won the Acton Business Fair that year, so she had like a hundred bucks that she, I think she got from the business fair, and she maybe had another hundred dollars. She had enough to buy a plane ticket to Miami. But I'm like, Laura, you're 14. <laughs> it's Miami. You still need to get a ticket to the event, which was several hundred dollars, a place to stay that mom and dad approve of, no, not a hostel, um, and you need to eat, and your plane ticket would be into Fort Lauderdale, so it's like an $80 Uber ride each way. Yes, how? Um, so let it go, and my husband was smart enough. He's like, I'm just gonna book a ticket on Southwest Points because we can get the points back if this doesn't happen, but at least it's there. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like. I think that's silly that you're booking it, but okay. Sure. And she just gets after it. She at that point was um, interning for free for a Tony Robbins coach, like transcribing notes. And uh, she asked you know, him, he didn't have any leads. She just got on Instagram, started messaging people. She's like, I wanna find ways to add value to people in a way that maybe I can get a free ticket somewhere. So she kept asking, asking, and nothing. She probably sent like 70, 80, 90. Instagram messages. Eventually, doggone it. Somebody's like, you know what? I have a free ticket. I'm not gonna be able to use it. It's yours if you like it. All right, so she scored a ticket. I'm like, got well, the ticket. All right. I still got a long ways to go. Um, the day before the event, Seth was in Baltimore. I'm in Austin and he's like, can I cancel this ticket now? I'm like, I think so, but let me just check with her. Um, and she's like, mom, 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 you're not gonna believe this. I, I need you to get on the phone with this lady and Again, long story short, an email came to her. It was not actually intended for her. It was intended for somebody else that this guy was sending at Tony Robbins. And anyway, it came to her and it had to do with housing where they house all the Tony Robbins people. And like the staff people? Yeah, staff, like okay. the important people. You get little wristbands, okay. secure housing. And um, she got on the phone with the lady that runs this program. And she's like, she'd like to talk to you. And so I, I talked to her. Um, it all sounds like it checks out. Like, Laura, let me see the email. I read the email, I'm like, Laura, do you realize that this wasn't actually intended for you? She reads it again and she's like, yeah, it has somebody else's name, but that's my phone number. So he had accidentally put her phone number in when it was intended for somebody else. She's like, all right, I'll call her back. So she calls the woman and says, I'm really sorry. I know that, you know, but this wasn't intended for me. And she's like, I really like you and I'd like to be able to help make this happen for you because just in talking with you, I know that how much you want this. Like, did you tell her your budget? Because <laughs> we were insistent that she do all of this on her own. Mm -hmm. And she's like, all I can afford is $200. And he was like, that's okay. I will work with your budget and I will pick you up and drop you off personally at the airport in Fort Lauderdale. All right, so she made it happen. She made all of it happen. So she flew by herself to Miami went to the event, had an amazing time, gets there and realizes that the woman that we thought we didn't know, we actually knew meeting her from a previous event. Uh, and because Laura was able to go, um, because Laura went, this lady's 14 year old daughter also went and they got to be friends 
through the whole thing. So. So question. Yeah. Uh, let's say she got close but didn't get across the finish line on <laughs> raising the money or pieces. Would you have closed the gap? Nope. 100% no. That's that's pretty good. And that's where you got to hold your lines, right? This is where his parents were like, oh, well, you, it was so, such a yeah, good try. So close. Life doesn't work that way. Oh, well, you made a really good offer on that house. It was really good. You get a house too. That's not how it works. <laughs> One person gets the house. The next letter in magic is G for grace. Mm -hmm. And I really want to help, I want to understand how, how you mean it. Cause like my understanding of when I first heard this and encountered it, I thought of it, you know, I thought of it in the sort of religious sense of like mm. the grace of God. Yeah. But how do you mean grace? What does it mean to parent with grace and be a mom with grace? Yeah, I, I, moms are really good at giving grace to others. Kids, spouse, everybody else around. I think where we struggle the most is with ourselves. It's having grace with ourselves and self-compassion and what what are the things that we're considering luxury items that I would say are more maintenance. So if our car, you know, the little light goes off to change the oil, we'll take it in every 3,500 miles or whatever it is, right? Like, we're not gonna let the engine run dry. Do we know for ourselves as mothers what we need for maintenance, right? So I'll hear moms say things like, well, I just needed a shower, or I just needed a, you know, go to the, like, I just need some exercise or a walk and, Oh my gosh, I went and got my nails done for the first time and whatever. I'm like, these are all maintenance items. These aren't luxuries. What do we need to be able to have grace with ourselves to realize, you know what, I need a massage. Like, I need to go to the chiropractor. Like, those are maintenance items, not, um, not luxuries. So what does it look like to have grace and self-compassion towards ourself? For all the things that we do, and, and just, just because we are. So whether that means, you know, getting a chance to journal or going on a walk by yourself or getting together with a friend without an agenda, because everything's got an agenda. Uh, moms, our friends tend to be, well, I kind of like Susie's mom who, you know, is at gymnastics. Like we just kind of like piecemeal things together based on our kids. We send our kids to summer camp. Why don't we get to go on a week of summer camp for ourselves? I, I don't think those are unreasonable things for us to do as moms, yet no one's encouraging that. You know, you've raised and are still raising four daughters mm -hmm. and been an entrepreneur and, and built businesses with your, with, with your husband, Seth. How do you think about that balancing act and where you fit the, the grace in mm -hmm. as, a, as a working mom? I mean, obviously a lot of American mm -hmm. moms are also working and balancing, balancing yeah. you know, a lot, of, a lot of stuff. Yeah. And dads are too, of course. But sure. you know, from your perspective, sort of, where have you struggled with it the most? Oh gosh, um, with even just putting a day in my calendar, you know, once every six weeks, here are the things I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna go do. I'm gonna go get a massage. I'm gonna go get my hair done. I'm gonna go like it's just scheduled in, and the family knows that this is what mom's doing for mom. It's not like the secretive like, ooh, if I can steal away for a minute. I'll go do this thing for myself. It's, I think it's a family conversation of, to make the family work, mom's gotta take care of herself. So what's, what's the family gonna do to support mom? I, I think that needs to be more of a conversation and a conversation, you know, assuming dad's in the picture, like how does he need to support her to go do those things? Because sometimes we need to kick out the door to go do those things and we need support of, hey, will you take the kids so that I can go do these things? 
will you plan a play date for me with one of my friends and the dads, you go watch the kids. Like that would be really helpful. Because uh, otherwise we're planning everything. Let me plan care for the kids. Let me make sure they have food. Let me make sure their schedules are changing. And then I'll get to go out. And by that time I'm exhausted, I'm not gonna go. Yeah, so your advice for dads then to mm -hmm. help sounds like pay attention. <laughs> pay attention and don't ask, just do. I, I can guarantee you, like, if you go set up a play date with, you know, tell her and her friend, like, send them out to a restaurant for dinner and just say, hey, you and your best friend are going out to dinner on Thursday night. Don't worry, I got the kids. I don't think she's going to be upset. <laughs> like, don't ask her. I think, you know, less, well, what would you like? Because then we feel like we're just planning it. That's just a good point. Gift. Just give the gift. You know where she likes to go eat? Just say, hey, you have two hours. Go. You just are not allowed to be here. Go do it. Go do you know, we both have kids at, at Acton, mm -hmm. and one of the things at Acton is that um, the, the handful of adults that are there are not allowed to answer questions, yeah. only ask. So it makes sense that the I in magic would be inquiry, mm -hmm. inquire. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. Why is that important? Oh, because you can change the future by asking a question. You don't have to wait for the answer to show up. So if, you know, it's like, oh, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Well. It's a terrible question. It's more of a greeting. Whereas if I said, hey, John, what's the best thing that happened to you today before this very moment? Right, like that, that's gonna spark an entirely different answer than, hey, how are you? So learning to ask our kids questions, even when we think we know the answers. So I have forced myself to ask three questions before I give an answer when my kids say something that it's like, I know the answer, I'm mom, right? I'm gonna get out of judgment, I'm gonna go into curiosity, I'm gonna ask questions. And when I find that, I find that when I ask the questions, I, I, a whole world's open up and I'm like, I had no idea that they thought that way. So you said that you had three questions you asked? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are these three questions? It's not, it's not a pre-planned, oh, okay. but I oh, you're, force you're, myself. You're gonna ask three I'm questions. I'm going to ask three okay. questions, yeah. Yeah, because um, that hones the skill. It's just a muscle that needs to be exercised. Nobody taught us how to ask questions. Actually, did the opposite. Don't ask questions. You know, that's really true. There is a, the sense in which asking good questions is a skill yeah. is like the skill no one teaches because they assume, well, you know, you're gonna ask a question if you've got a question. If you've got a question. It's not true. <laughs> I don't know how to ask a question. I come from a culture, the whole Indian culture, like you don't ask questions. You're really? obedient. How, how so? Yeah, tell well, me about it's that. just a very respectful culture. People that are older than you know better. So you sit and you listen and you take the test and you, like, whatever it is, but other people know better and so you be quiet. There's no asking questions because that, that's seen as disrespectful or pushing back on authority. One example you're giving of how to ask good questions is be more, in a way, be more specific. Like make the stimulus something there I actually have to think instead mm -hmm. of some general thing. Are there, do you have any other advice for how to ask good questions? Yeah, so I think there's a hierarchy of questions. Um, why, a why question is the lowest level of question. Because it's, I mean, even think about how your body feels when you hear the word why. Like it's accusatory, well, why'd you do that? Why, why did that, yeah, why just, ugh. when you can get to the how, and the best questions are the who questions, Oh, who could help you with that? Who might know the answer to that? 
who might be a good person to talk to? Like the whole world opens up with a who question, but who questions, how questions, how might that be possible? How might we be able to do something different? If we did, if I, I know we don't know the answer, but if we did know the answer, what might it be? Hmm, that's funny because there, you know that Simon Sinek, he's got that start with why yeah. presentation, yep. which is pretty powerful. It's like, oh, you it know, is. You're speaking about leadership and yes. all these kinds of things. It's like, well, why is sort of your motivation. It's the it's the underlying purpose. Yes. But you are right. It's like when you just say, well, why? It does it it does speak to motivation, which is very uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable, and it causes people to shrink. And instead of getting them to shrink, we want them to expand. So when we want them to expand, we have to approach questions differently. There's nothing wrong with the why question, just in its right place. So maybe when it comes to asking questions, end with why instead of <laughs> there start you go. with why. <laughs> I like that. That could be your next book. <laughs> All of this ladders into C, I think, which yeah. for you is coach is being a coach. Yeah. And so why coach? Why not mentor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or role model? Like, mm -hmm. what is it about being a coach mm -hmm. that puts the period on the on the magic mom, yeah, the so magic mom? I think there's different roles that people can play, a, a coach, a mentor, a consultant. And they're distinct. And I think we collapse those a lot, and especially today where everybody's a coach, right? And it's like, oh, no. They're a mentor, they're a consultant, they all might say coach at the bottom, but they're very different. So a mentor is somebody who has just done something that you might want to do that just shares their experience with you. So they might say, well, this is how I got to where I am today. Hope it helps you, good luck, right? There's no vested interest in how that game gets played and how that ends up. Um, the consultant, they have experience, they've got lots of tools in their tool belt. So they'll come in, assess a situation and say, hey, any of these might work for you. Um, here's my suggestion. Here's the strategy that I suggest. Good luck. But they get paid and they move on their way. A coach, on the other hand, has a vested interest in how that game's get, game gets played. I mean, think about a sports team. The coach gets fired. So the <laughs> coach wants to keep their job. They want this game to go well. They want to win. They want to win. And sometimes the coach will call the play. Other times the coach will say, hey, quarterback, you call the play. So there's this relationship between a coach and a player that's very special. As a parent, I don't think we have more than 18 years to be coach. So zero to 18, and, and, it, and it will decline over time, right? When they're super little, like, hey, we're coach and we get to call all the plays. And, yeah. But as you know, they get closer to 18, we're kind of like handing them the playbook. Okay, like you get, to, you get to make these plays now. But when they leave home, I think is when we see, okay, how did we do? How do we do as coach? Because that's when we earn the opportunity to become the consultant. So now having launched a child into the world, my phone will ring at 5.15, just about every day when she's done work. She'll call me, I hear about her day. And uh, there are times when she's like, hey mom, I'm thinking about this, this, and this, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I'm a consultant at this point. Hmm. She doesn't have to take anything that I say, but the fact that she's asking me means, okay, we did an okay job at home. Because she wants to know what I think. How many kids would say, I'm gonna do what I want. And I feel like it tends to be talked about with, uh, with fathers, like that, that before you can be a man, you, you, you know, some say like, you, you know, your dad has to die. Like you can't, you're not really mm. a man until you're, until you're, the, you're the new adult. Yeah. There's like a sense of succession or a passing of the baton. Uh, my friend John Mackey talks about how, you know, he reached a point with Whole Foods, he was founder of Whole Foods Market, mm -hmm. 
where in the early stages, his dad was pro really helped provide him with guidance. And then there was a point where he realized like, I, 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 have, I have eclipsed what my dad can yeah. offer me. How do you think about that as a mom? And, how do you, mm -hmm. and, and is it different? I don't feel like I hear that like, that sort of succession concept in mm -mm. the same way for, no. for girls and their mothers. But how do you think about that? Because you're talking about a, a transition moment in the relationship. Yeah, so I, I go back to that whole idea of we'd be willing to die for them, but will we live for them? Because most moms, when I ask them, you know, hey, if you look at your own mom, would you say that she was happy? And I think about it, and most of them would say, no, she was more of a martyr. She ate last, she put everybody else first, kind of like grin and bear it, kind of made it through. It's why you see all the divorces happening, right? Like the kids graduate, all of a sudden people that you think were, I thought they were totally okay, not okay. They weren't okay for a long time, but a lot of times it's because the mom's hanging on. Like, I'll, I'll just, I'll make it okay for the kids because I don't want to hurt the kids. Do we think that we're fooling the kids? So yeah. what would it mean for mom to actually choose to be happy in the midst and not wait for some later time? So, you know, in my own story, that was part of the move to Austin. It was, this isn't working. What if we moved our family? We ended up moving and all six of us now would say, gosh, I wish we had done it sooner. But I can guarantee you if we had tried to wait it out a few more years, five more years, I don't think, I don't think we'd be together. I think it would have ended very differently because I was so unhappy. So what does it mean for mom to choose happiness now and fully live now and have that be a model for the kids? Like, hey, mom deserves to be happy too. Mom doesn't always go last. Mom doesn't have to eat the last chicken tender on the plate and that be dinner. Um, no, everybody can chip in and help make the family work. Mom isn't the end all be all. You know, that comes back to your, your notion, the sense of modeling, right? It's like we as, as fathers and mothers are modeling what adult relationships look like for our kids. Yeah. Right. And I don't believe that we're raising kids. I think we're raising adults. I've always had that mindset. We should be, right? We should be, right? There's like a little bit kids, too much raising giant babies going on these days. There is a whole lot of that. But <laughs> how would things be different if that's what we actually believed, that they were right. capable? Yeah, there's a book uh, by a, a woman named Julie Lithgott Hames, but the book is How to Raise an Adult. Yeah. And she was a dean at Stanford, so she saw all these essentially like 18-year-old mm -hmm. infants coming in. Yeah, or seeing more of it since and COVID. It's gotten it's gotten worse. It's it's a big part of what this channel is about. Is yeah. like, how do you as a as a father and as a parent raise an adult <laughs> so that the country doesn't fall apart so because we're being run by infants and, <laughs> being yeah. triggered. You know, like in, like in auto response, like being triggered is like what babies do. Babies are auto auto emotional response to stimulus. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what it means to be a, a child. Instead of watching trash on TV, why aren't we, like we watch documentaries at home. We listen to podcasts on, I mean, my kids, they, <laughs> we laugh, we laugh about this a lot. Um, they talk about, dad made us listen to a podcast on how to shake hands. <laughs> it has to be web to web and the pressure and, but then when they go meet people and they shake people's hands, like, yeah, they didn't do it right. <laughs> and the kids have really good handshakes, right? But these are things that it's like, no, these are important lessons that they need to be learning, how to communicate, how to talk, how to read expressions, how to 
you know, have emotional intelligence. These are conversations to have with your kids. There has, so ha, so what are other ways that you as a, as a mom, um, you are like especially suited to be a coach because you're now do, you're yeah. doing this. So this yeah. is something that's, this is your stock and trade. Yeah. Um, what are other ways that you coach and have coached your, your kids and played that role? Uh, leveraging other people in places, right? I don't have to know all the answers, but there are lots of people out there that I want to introduce them to so that they have those influences, right? So, I mean, we've taken them to Landmark, we've taken them to Tony Robbins and NLP classes and anywhere they're not the smartest in the room. We want them to be the youngest in the room, in fact, because we take them into those rooms and even if they're, you know, playing on their iPad and they're eight or nine, I mean, if I'm gonna pay for a sitter or pay for them to be in the class on an iPad, 100% would pay for them to sit in the class with on an iPad because they're gonna hear something and all these other adults in the room are gonna come up to them and say, you have no idea how lucky you are to be here. Your parents are so amazing. I wish I had this information when I was your age. And they're gonna say, yeah, 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 but then things are sticking. The things are sticking. And then they realize, oh, I can make little cute bracelets and I can take them and people will buy them from me for $5. <laughs> and they can go in and make money. And then we teach them about entrepreneurship just from that standpoint. So there's, so, there's opportunity everywhere. We just have to go take it. This is where I go back to people sleepwalking. No, like, where are you growing? If your kids see that you grow, mom, you have a coach? Yeah, I've got a coach. Well, I need a coach. Okay, let's find you one. I think about this in terms of therapy, which I have never done, <laughs> but which, um, which my wife has. And uh, again, like some of our, multiple of our guests have talked about the benefits of therapy. Yeah. And as men, it's something that we, I don't think tend to want to do. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, having, and I had the opposite and I love my dad, my dad's amazing. Yeah. But therapy, coaching. Yep. He's like, nah, nah, uh -huh. what's that What's that BS? I don't need yeah. that. Well, that was what was modeled for you, right? <laughs> so you just haven't done it either. It's like, dad didn't do it, I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, that's gonna be some head talk that's gonna be a waste of your time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe sometimes it is, maybe sometimes he's right. But um, what was the best coaching you got from your parents and what was the worst? I don't think my parents ever were coaches. Really? I don't, I don't see, I didn't see that. Growing up, I sought out other coaches. Really, they, they, you, don't, you wouldn't see them as having no. been coaches for you? No, because having been the first one to grow up here, to be born and raised here, there was a lot of figuring things out on my own. I was, they didn't know how to send me to school. I went to kindergarten the first day and I had the wrong shoes on and every kid told me, because my mom didn't read, you know, like, oh, you can't have Velcro shoes. And I was so proud of my little kangaroo shoes and you know? And what's wrong with this school for caring about what kind of shoes you're wearing? That's a whole other thing. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so there was, for me, there was a lot of figuring it out. I realized, ooh, mom and dad aren't gonna be able to help me here because they don't know. They haven't had the experience here. Like their big thing for me was they got here. They got to the US. They got here to be able to have, for me to have the opportunity. And then it was like, okay, Alice, like now you gotta figure it out. To them, I think American meant freedom and take, you know, making her own choices. I ask this of every guest, and since you're a first generation immigrant, it's especially fun to ask, you know, how do you see your own role in the American story? Mm. My role in the American story is empowering moms, just empowering moms to be more of who they are so that the next generation of women are strong.
and whole. It, it, it come from a line of, you know, when you look at India, I mean, the oppression, right? And here we get yeah. to be whoever we want to be. And so to raise strong women. We need more of that than ever before. Mm -hmm. We need it for boys and for girls. We do. And I guess one last question is, uh, you know, what can dads and boys learn from, from your lesson? I think there's a, a lot. I think there's not yeah. much in this book and in our conversation yeah. that doesn't apply. 100%. But are there things that you would shade differently for, for dad? It would be more of a reminder that we need you and we need you to show up and we need your presence because there's a whole bunch that you bring to the table that we can't do and there's a whole lot we bring to the table that you can't do. So just being more aware to yeah. all of those magical things that happen that you didn't know that the kids went to the doctor and that the kids, you know, have clothes on and they're wearing new shoes because they outgrew them and all of those things. Yeah, so just, yeah. just the awareness and being able to support her. Ask, just ask her, hey, how can I support you? Thanks for being on Dad Saves America, Alice. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica.